Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Michael Engler's new costume drama, Downton Abbey. Based on the beloved television series, the film returns us to the early 20th century English countryside with another tale of the Crawley family and their home. As both the hosts and the help prepare for a royal visit from the King and Queen of England, scandal, romance, and intrigue will leave the future of Downton hanging in the balance. In addition to Downton Abbey, Mr. Engler's credits include the feature film The Chaperone, the movies for television Single with Parents, 20 Questions, and Mastergate, and episodes of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, The Big C, Six Feet Under, and Dream On. He is a three-time DGA Award nominee for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Comedy Series for his 2006 30 Rock episode Rosemary's Baby, and his 1998 Sex in the City episodes Hop, Skip, and A Week, and My Motherboard Myself. He was also nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Series for his 2015 Downton Abbey episode, Downton Abbey Christmas Special. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in New York, Mr. Engler spoke with director Ritesh Batra about filming Downton Abbey. During their conversation, he discusses how he was introduced to the show, adapting an already cinematic TV show for the cinema, and working with Dame Maggie Smith. Thank you very much. Michael, such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Just, just what we needed to start the week. Yeah. And uh, thank you, you're such a lovely audience. I, I so love watching this movie with you. I loved watching the movie. And this is a lovely audience. They really <laughs> were with it and they enjoyed it. And I, you, know, you could feel it in the room. Um, well, I don't know where to start. I, uh, this is such a tremendous undertaking. And I was thinking about it while I was watching it. Um, and it's, it's not one of the things I'm just saying. I was actually thinking about it. Uh, was that the whole thing is, has its roots in a movie, uh, Gosford Park, yes, with yes. Julian Fellows. And, and then it comes back to this movie. And it's, you know, the legacy of the series, which you were also involved with. Uh, I guess it feels the right, right place to begin, just the conversation. I'd like to pull all you guys in, too, very soon. But the whole the responsibility of it and can you tell us how, you were obviously involved with the series as well, you shot a lot of episodes, mm-hmm. uh, but coming into this movie, coming into this movie, what were the kind of conversations you were having with Julian and how did you prepare yourself? Well, I mean, you have a lot of, uh, mostly I would say advantages just because you understand the DNA of the story and the characters and the world and the actors and the location, some of them and all that. So. Um, the, 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 I mean, the main thing we all felt was it, it shouldn't be something different. It should feel like the same DNA grown and developed and with new opportunities and new, you know, restrictions or ways of thinking about it. First of all, just because the structure of a feature is so different, you know, we, we, we both needed to have a lot of stories, check in with all the different characters because that was such a part of what the series was. 
But in the series, you know, every week somebody could have a story and somebody else was more in the background and that could shift around. And in this, it felt like everybody needed in some way to be accounted for separately. But as a feature, it needed to have one story that pulled everybody along and that created some stakes for everybody. So um, <clears throat> I think it was about two years ago when he finally sort of had been reading about this actual royal visit that had happened and thought, oh, this would be a good way of pinning it on that. Because he said, you know, there's a lot of ways you can pull everybody in on a story like malaria or a fire. And <laughs> it just didn't feel like the, the spirit of what he wanted to do. So, um, so, then, so there was that, you know, trying to find that balance between um, what it always felt like and then how to shape it so that it felt satisfying as, as a feature. And then, and then the other side, and part of that I think is taken care of by the story, which is that, you know, create, creating opportunities for it to feel more cinematic, for it to be necessary to be more cinematic. And so, again, the royal visit just sort of creates more opportunities for larger scale events and, you know, the parade and the banquets and the ball and those kinds of things. Um, and then we just also kind of said, well, you know, let's, in, in just the filmmaking of it, let's sort of remember what the DNA is, but, but feel, not feel bound by it, feel like we can expand it, do things we wouldn't have done in the series, either because of money or just because of the way things started to develop in the series and they didn't want to vary too much from it. So um, it was sort of a mixed blessing. Sure. So what you said about having all these storylines and kind of keeping us along with everything, your fluid masters had a lot to do with that to make the movie feel like it just flows like water. And, and you know, every, I noticed every scene, every scene started with this lovely master that was sometimes knowing and sometimes not, but it, it just pulled everybody in into the story, just the characters and also the audience. Uh, and it just, can you tell us a little bit about how, how you devised that with your, with your DOP? And was that also, it's, it's also in the DNA, as you're saying? Yeah, some right. of it. I mean, we, we definitely changed things and did some things differently. But yeah, I think the feeling of, um, you know, the um, Ellis says when they're downstairs and everything's sort of going crazy below stairs. And, and um, he says, yeah, a royal visit is like a swan on a lake elegant above and mad kicking down below. And that sort of is the really the hallmark of what the series was always trying to do, sort of show that contrast. And so, you know, again, just having had more time to work with, we, we could spend more time rehearsing and creating longer kind of moving shots that would play around what the actors were doing. And I think often what happens with television you know, is you just sort of make your choices about given the, the time frame you have to shoot something, where you're gonna focus on the more um, sort of cinematic, thematic approaches to shooting things and where you just need to sort of, you know, focus on the characters, the actors, the, the, the story in a more uh, straightforward kind of way. Um, so we had more of that to play with and we just committed to spending more time rehearsing so that we could play with more things that would evolve through a shot rather than, um, you know, just knowing we're going to set it up and then we can always cut quickly to something else if we need to. Um, it gave us more 
you know, more time to develop those shots. And so I also felt like in the scale of the cinema, being in those rooms is very satisfying in a wide shot. You know, you feel it in a different way than you do on television, even if it's a similar shot that we would have used before, you feel more immersed in it than you would have and you see much more detail and depth. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and also it feels like just watching it that it is, I mean, this is a director's medium and there's now bigger evidence than, you know, than like the experience of watching this movie and seeing how, how you, you know, it is extremely cinematic extremely cinematic and, and you know so aspects of the series were too but then you know you're shooting six pages a day when you're making a series right. and and here you are you know it's prose versus poetry and you can see the poetry and, and just bringing everything together well you know the thing was the series always was like cinematic that was an adjective that everybody always applied mm -hmm. to it so the funny thing was there were bigger events more of them and things like that in this but uh, well, I was sort of amazed that even just intimate scenes with two people play in a in a more cinematic way because suddenly you you see the whole room around them in a different way, and so something that's very intimate that you experience in a grander room or setting actually has a kind of interesting tension to it that I feel like changed when I first saw it on a large screen, I thought, oh, that actually feels differently, even though it's not that different a shot, you know? It sort of scales up, and, and in the scaling, the kind of feeling and the meaning automatically change. Well, you know, so it's interesting to me, just reading about you and watching this movie and watching it play out and things that are happening in the world right now, is that it's, it's such a, like, the, we all know about the British monarchy and the class system and the and the weight of it and and like it felt to me that I could see that an American made it like the the possibility of of you know the the maids and the butlers that that sense of possibility there's something very American about about this take on <laughs> Downton Abbey. I felt. Well, that's interesting. I, I have I, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> Or you've brought, you, yeah, you made an American. No, I mean, it's interesting because going in as an American, you know, I think, I think I, you know, looking at it as an outsider, that world, I mean, they do too, frankly, because they don't live in a world that's like that right now. But there are so many remnants of that, even in contemporary culture oh, sure, yeah. there, that, um, you know, I did feel like often I would just sort of come up against something and have a, a kind of question about something that was really just me tr trying to get inside some moment and, 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 and by asking it, realize, oh, they just sort of take that for granted because they don't even think about it or question it anymore, you know? Yep, yeah, the, whole, the whole romance of it and the, and the, the possibility of it, it, you know, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't stuffy, it was, it was very American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, can, we can open it up too, if you guys have any questions, um, or I can keep I can keep at it. Go ahead, sir. Oh, that. Well, uh, it was a couple of things. One was, well, it was a couple of things. One was the sort of uh, feeling of how do we bring people back into the world. And in some ways, how do we bring new people in, give it some space for people to kind of settle into it. And there's more opening credits than you've ever seen on the list anywhere. And so it was like, well, we've got some time to, to, to play with it. 
And, um, you know, we talked about, well, let's see how much it will bear. And if not, we can always move the credits to the end if it just seems, because it really was so many cards. It was an unbelievable amount. But we thought if the journey getting there feels like a little bit of a, you know, forced, postponed gratification, you know, that it might be a fun journey to take. And to, again, set up the scale, set up the stakes, and um, so that as we're slowly going back closer and closer and closer to the actual house, and then in it and around it, it's sort of a way of, you know, sort of welcoming the audience back into the world so that, because the story starts on the first line, which is, you know, opens it up, the king and queen are coming to to Downton. So, um, you know, it, it, it felt like it needed some life and some air before that. You know, so the first spoken dialogue in the movie is Blimey. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. you have us, you have us from Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Rosie, I want to ask you about just the, the, the detail that something like that requires. And, and, of course, being from the outside and being able to see what the people from inside can't. But at the same time, how do you prepare yourself? How do you prepare yourself for the l- level of detail it requires? in the costumes, in the sets. Of course, you're working with great people. Yeah, uh, yeah. But in the end, at the end of the day, it's your, it's your call and everybody's looking to you. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely right that the people, the department heads in that are incredible. Several of them have been on it since the beginning or at least for a long time. Um, and very often they teach me more about it than I actually direct them because they'll come and they'll say, you know, here are three choices for this. And, you know, this one comes from this and does that, this one, you know. And so as we talk about them, then I sort of start to get a sense of which one actually tells a story that, that we want to tell. Um, I would say for me, the, the, the sort of the mo- they make that very easy is what I'm saying, is that they, they present such specific choices and opportunities that it becomes, and then, the, and then the reasoning behind those things, so that once we've had a discussion about a direction or how a scene should feel or what the relationship of scenes should be, um, then they come back with a lot of those possibilities, and then we just keep refining as we go. But I think in terms of the just finding the... Y- y- the arc of each story and the shape of that, and then trying to anticipate how they're all gonna weave together, you know, and kind of the way it sort of goes big sometimes where you see a big thing with a lot of people and then it goes very small and you're suddenly alone with a couple of people or in a small group or a big group or a, you know, it just keeps expanding and contracting. And so I think trying to, anticipate the the possibilities of 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 like what range you're going to need from everybody because I, a lot of times you know i i'm putting something like this together you, i would sort of say like oh we now we know by the way that scene is now we know where it's going two scenes too early so how do we pull that back and how do we rehearse it and shoot it in such a way that we can, I can discover some of that in the editing room. I try to give myself as much, as much opportunity to, to calibrate those things later. You see the performances, 
And it's such, you know, you have such a wonderful cast of characters here. You know, you have how many, how many dames do you have in the movie? Yeah. Maggie Smith and yeah, <laughs> Penelope Wilton, I think, uh, yeah, a couple of knights, uh, yeah, a few. Yeah, 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 at least one dame and at least a couple of future yeah. dames. Uh, yeah. But in terms of working with them, I have to ask you about Maggie Smith because I just love Maggie Smith. Uh, the rehearsal process and, uh, you know, she's so spot on. She's yeah. so spot on in every scene and every every moment. Yeah. Well, you know, she she's still uh, thorough and passionate and detailed in her thinking. And again, you know, I, I feel like because she has thought so much through it all and she brings so much to the set that very often it's if I have a note, it usually has to do with something like um, just how much do you know right here? You know, what do you what do you think you're learning about it in this scene? So we don't get too far ahead of something, or or skip a moment to notice something or take something in. Um, but in terms of sort of directing, a lot of them again, there, there there's a lot of sort of fine shaping of scenes that has more to do with the overall dynamics than it has to do with. The, uh, them creating a character which they know so well by now, you know. Um, so that, in a way, becomes, you know, in a film, you would, you know, the whole beginning of it and all through the process, they're learning so much about the character while they're shooting it. And here, they, they already know so much about the characters, so it just becomes about the specifics of this exact story and where they fit into it and how. Sure. Any, any other questions, guys? There you go. Well, you know, it depends who you ask. Uh, it's, it's, we're very serious about it, and they're very serious about it. And there's a guy named Alistair Bruce who's with us on the set most of the time who really is an authority from everything from like military operations to curtsies. I mean, he really is sort of uh, kind of an amazing encyclopedic guy. And, and so there are things that are just pure, fantastical storytelling, like probably the royal staff is not so nasty and things like that, you know. We had a couple of them on the set, and they were like, you're, you're being a little rough on us there, you know. But um, uh, so, you know, but, and when it comes to like the specifics of protocol, manners, behavior, all that, Everything, we, we start from the sort of starting line of it has to be correct. Then, in anything, we have, you know, I think it has to do with drama, you sort of say, well, could somebody do this? Not would they normally, but under these circumstances, might they? And, and, if, and if we feel like that's part of the story, then maybe that's okay, you know? So, so um, you know, like for, like for instance, I mean, I think this is a kind of nutty moment, but when, when, when Mosley kind of does that sort of curtsy thing at the table, and it's just, you know, I mean, he would never make a move like that. And it's just, he seems so flustered and so overwhelmed and trying to make it up. You know, it's like, well, no, he probably wouldn't do that, but for the purposes of the drama and the comedy and that character's moment, let's say it could happen, you know. And also, I think because everyone there seems to look at it like, what the hell was that? 
that automatically says, oh, right, this doesn't just happen in that world, you know? So um, it, it's, it's slavish at times and in many ways. And like things like the, the um, where people can sit at the table and where they can't, certain things have to go a certain way and then certain things are variable or where they're all positioned when the king and queen arrive. That's very, very uh, specific and rigid. And so very often, once we start to look at all that and put it together, then often I'll go you know, back to Julian and I'll say, these two people can't be next to each other at the table. This person has to be here and whatever. Can you give this line to somebody else? Or, uh, or you know what, these two have to say that, but there's no way they can be near each other at the table and it's got to be confidential, so can we create a moment where they're walking in or they're walking out and things like that. And, and in that sense, it all does shift around. Uh, the script has to shift around what we know to be true or possible. Professionally? Uh, well, personally, I, you know, people were telling us about it for the first season and uh, you know, when I heard about it, I thought, well, I do love period British drama. I really, really do. And I just thought, and I, and I don't, you know, I just thought, it's down, Downton, Downtown Abbey, what is, I sort of imagined this like, like in the seedy, you know, neighborhood of Liverpool, some, some modern day pastor was, you know, ministering to the urban whatever. Anyway, so I got the, the, the DVDs sent to me because, you know, as a D, uh, DGA member, and, uh, and sat down and just watched the whole first season in three, three nights and just fell in love with it. So then I was in London and I was just visiting London and a friend of mine was friends with Liz Truebridge, who's one of the producers and has been since the beginning. And she knew what a big fan I was, my friend. And Liz Truebridge had, it was there, first of all, they all love American television. I mean, they are, crazy about it in the UK. They really respect it and give us credit for having really kind of elevated the form. And, um, and so she had seen a lot of things and we just started talking and I think, you know, it was, it was going into their fifth season and I think she just had the idea that maybe a wild card like me who was so passionate about it and knew it so well would be an interesting person to introduce into it. And it, it you know, I, 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 it was so strange, but I never felt more at home more quickly in a company. Like, they're just, they're, 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 they're just all serious about the work and, and love to do it. So I had a great time. I'm going to ask you, kind, kind of a follow-up to that, and it's also like selfishly something that I want to know. Uh, you've been involved in so much great stuff, like stuff that has impacted the culture, you know, Sex in the City, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, your credits read, like, you know... Uh, like you can track the whole 90s, 2000s culture through all those shows. How do you decide? Do you, do you go after jobs? Like in this case, you fell in love with the show, but how do you choose? How do you choose your work? Well, uh, sometimes I really do, you know, know of something or read something or see something and say, I would love to be a part of that and then talk to agents or people I know if I don't know those people or contact them directly sometimes. And, and seek it out, and then sometimes it comes and I respond to it or don't. Usually it has to do with particular um, 
people that I want to work with or writing that I respond to. And then it could be anything, really, as long as I feel like I... You know, I, I, I read things sometimes and I think, huh, you know, I didn't... Like, it's a comedy and I didn't really laugh that much. And I think I wouldn't really know how to direct it. And then I feel like if I laugh at something, I know how to make it funny. And if something affects me emotionally, then I feel like I can recreate that experience that I had for other people. And, um, and so it's, I think it's that a lot. Just once I, I have some kind of connection like that to it. Listen, I think if, if the world decided that, you know, they were thrilled to have this movie and ready for another one, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Julian had more story in him. He loves that world and he, um, you know, he's set so many characters in motion that, um, that I think so. I mean, honestly, I think one of the biggest things, you know, I think, I think Maggie may be done with it. And I think some people, just where they are in their lives now after this and after all these years and then coming back to it, you know, that's the hardest part of it is just gathering the people who to be in it, enough of them who are gonna be free at the right time together to make it feel like the same thing and not like a different one, you know, so. It's a room for an Indian footman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, do it. I mean, the thing, the thing is, and, and he's very aware, I mean, in that little speech Mary gives at the end where she says, you know, is it basically, is it worth it, you know, like preserving a house like this, the, the world it was built for just doesn't exist anymore. And there's not a person of color in the film. And, and you know, that's this story and that's what it is. And we, we are slavishly, you know, accurate in that way. We don't put things that wouldn't be that way just for the sake of it. But part of it is that, like, like we have to, like, what's the next story to tell that really sort of opens up a wider world? Because it, it, it does start to feel at a certain point like, you know, we can't just be sort of glorifying an old world that doesn't, that doesn't make sense anymore. Even, even if it's kind of a nice place to visit, you know, it starts to feel a little bit, um, pardon? Yeah, sterile, I think. I, I thought you said shallow, and I would agree with that as well. <laughs> I am one of those others. Um, yes, it's called The Gilded Age, and it's, um, it begins in New York in 1882. It starts shooting early next year uh, for HBO. It's 10 hours the first season, and then who knows after that. And it's... Uh, it's exciting. It's kind of, it has a sort of Edith Wharton, New York feel about it. And, um, and that does have people of color in it. And we've really pushed, no, and we've really said, look, if we're gonna tell a real American story, part of the difference of it is the downstairs, you know, people are Italian and Irish and Swedish and black and white, everything, you know, and they come from all over and, um, and 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 that's we have to do that do it that way and tell it that way and um, and so it it has all that thanks. So just one one, one more question about the actors for you because it's such a it's such an ensemble and it's also it's what's what's great great and also the risk about a, of an ensemble is and this is much credit to you that that it feels like everything is so 
controlled and modulated. And obviously I know how movies are shot, they're not shot in sequence. When you get up every morning and you go to a set like that, uh, how do you prepare yourself to modulate it? I know this is not a, there's no precise answer. To, to modulate it? To modulate all these performances and to you know, make sure that nothing, because nothing is more important than the other. The upstairs is not more important than the downstairs. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting because it's the, it, uh, every, every day is almost like a different acting company. You know, like when you're sort of in the kitchen, whatever, it's one whole group of people. And the, it, it, it's like a full cast of 12 people, you know, and they all know how to work together. And they know the, the, the behavior, the activities, what they need to be doing, how it works. You know, and so that's one set of things, and they all know that. And I think just kind of, I mean, every, I do feel like every day is a different, like I come in in a different way. I mean, like just the first, you know, the day, the beginning of the first day when we shot the huge parade and the, and the, true, the royal troop and all that kind of stuff. And I just sort of gathered everybody and said, here's what we're doing. Here are the sections of it. Here's the you know the, the the key moments we're gonna need you over here right at the beginning because it's the perfect place for us to get this stuff in the morning we're gonna be over here sometimes they know they're just basically extras in a big long day like that you know like a whole row of people like Maggie Smith and Penelope Wilton and Imelda Staunton and Hugh Bonneville and everybody they're just it's like they're extras all day and and just I, I try to mostly like lay out what the task and the map is for the day so that people are kind of clear in it all and sort of reminded like, oh, right, this is going to be one of those. And then, you know, going into a scene like with Maggie and Michelle at the end, that private little intimate thing, you know, where I just said, you know, to everybody, anybody who's not actually mechanically involved in that scene needs to be set up and working outside the room and kept it very quiet and kept a room next to it that was only for me and the actors. And, you know, just said this needs a kind of intimate austerity about it, just so they have the room to, to work together in that way, you know. Um, and so it, it, it really varies, and I think I do sort of think, okay, this is that piece right now. Or, you know, like the, the, the big scene with Mosley, you know, the big sort of funny scene at the table and all that. You know, there, there is a kind of, there needs to be a levity on a day like that. Everybody needs to feel sort of light and loose for that to happen, I think, in the right way. And so I just try to kind of go in and set up the spirit of the day right at the beginning with everybody. And I try to spend as much time as I can rehearsing with people. Um, and I, I'm sort of surprised that I hear very often from actors, they're like, oh God, thanks so much for rehearsing. And I sort of feel like, well, what, who doesn't? Does it happen not? a whole lot, yeah. Yeah, and, I do, and I, I do discover that a lot of people just kind of get in there and they kind of just block it, you know, and talk about a few things and then just get it set up. And, and I do find that if we really spend the time, and I think it's my background as a theater director, if you do spend the time, that a lot of the other things sort of take care of themselves. So you rehearse, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm hogging this, because I, this. <laughs> do you rehearse on set, or, or do you have a couple of days set aside before the shoot? Well, you know, first of all, with all the new people, I rehearsed with all of them separately 
their scenes with other people and with people in the cast and all that because they really were creating characters from scratch and kind of finding their way into the style of it and all that. So, and then with really kind of tricky things, I would give people the opportunity to. And so for instance, with, with Michelle and Maggie, a couple of times, and we shot that one of the last days of the shoot, but I would say, and that was sort of 10 weeks, I would say in week three and in week seven, there was a time when we had some downtime and they were both there where I sat with them in a trailer and we just talked about that scene and talked about stuff. The first time we literally just talked. And then the second time a few weeks later, we read it a few times, talked more, didn't really make any real decisions about it. And then the day before we did it, we actually kind of had a rehearsal. We put aside time at the end of that day for rehearsal so that then they could kind of sleep on it and come in the next day. Also because I wanted to come in that day and not talk about it and not rehearse it. Um, so that, and then certain things like the, you know, the, the everybody in the kitchen, that's just, a, it's such a ballet. And, you know, I just find like, well, they have to be moving around and finding the camera and the camera finding them. And so those we all just kind of make together. And then, and the, and the camera guys are in there with us. And I said, what would it be like if you just follow her around for everything? And then I'll realize like, oh, if she keeps moving on that line, then that'll cover his line and his line and all this. And, and, and then, oh, can I give you a reason to keep moving on that? And, and they're used to that too. So they'll say, oh, well, I'll just bring a rag to the sink on that line. And you know, they're very happy to find a way to motivate those technical things. You also, you have this, I noticed because I, I worked actually with two of these actors before. Right. And I noticed that you also have this knack of, and it's probably true of everybody in the company, but uh, all the actors, you allow them to bring themselves to it. Matthew Good, I know, when he got out of the car, he jumped out and right. he ran up the stairs and I was like, that's Matthew Good. Right, right, and you, right, right, right. you're allowing him to be Matthew Good as well. Yes, yes. It's lovely, that's lovely. We worked on a scene together where he wanted to bounce a cricket ball, walk around the room bouncing a cricket ball. And right, it, right. That was, a, it was one of the good decisions I made on that movie, to, to let him be him, yes. himself, you know? And, no, actually that too, and that thing of him running up the stairs wasn't, that's not in the script. It's, it's sort of, it cuts from you know, him arriving and asking them that, and then cuts to them in the, in the bedroom kissing. And, and, um, it just, and I just noticed it in a rehearsal. He was like, he kind of ran in and I thought, oh, wait a minute, that's really interesting. Just, the, of course, and he hasn't been on the, in, the, in the story for a while and, and just what better way to say how excited he is to see her. And so yeah. we sort of put that shot together and then, and then it took two days to get to it because it's a tricky shot to do. Yeah, it looks like a man who missed the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you also about the costumes, because uh -huh. I just I was just noticing every costume, and how it was Julian's writing too is so artful. Is that that also is, you know, it is a costume drama, and how he weaves that into the writing. And well, again about the attention to detail, like how much about your referencing and well, you know, nineteen twenty seven was a, was a good was a good time. You know, things were really changing in that area, and I think the great thing about Anna Robbins is she, she's always kind of looking at like what's exactly happening at the moment, and then who would be you know, going for it, for sort of grasping the new things, who would be really daring in that way, who would be 
gently trying it, who's still hanging back, who's hanging way back, and sort of helping to kind of uh, stratify the characters that way. Yeah. Well, lovely, yeah, it all, it all shows. But this is a lovely audience, thank you all so much. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Alfonso Gomez Rejon, Todd Phillips, and Pedro Almodovar. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.